This morning the reading is out of the book of John 14 from verse 1 to 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask me in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of God. Thank you, Faye, very much indeed. Well, let's um, keep that passage open in front of us. And uh, let's ask the Lord to be with us as we look at his word together. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is light for the path, food for our souls, strength for the weary, comfort and challenge. And we pray that as we study your word this morning that you would speak to us in a personal, helpful and special way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If I were to ask you this morning, uh, what do you believe is God's desire for your life? Uh, I wonder what you might say. Someone might say, loving my neighbour 
Uh, you know, I believe that God wants me to love other people, uh, especially those who are in need. Someone else might say, pray. Uh, God wants me to pray. And still another person might say, well, God wants me to read the Bible. He wants me to know the Bible really, really, really well. And of course, those are all excellent answers. But in a sense, they're all a means to an end. Because time and again, the Bible tells us that God wants us to be a people of joy. A people who find genuine delight in him. So, for example, the psalmist says, one of my favourite verses, he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's Psalm 37, verse 4. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, obey the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. No, it's delight yourself in the Lord. Then in the New Testament, the the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. So, it's not rejoice in the Lord on Sundays. It's not rejoice in the Lord when things are going really well. No, it's, it's rejoice in the Lord always. That is what God wants for you and for me. And what about Jesus? What did he have to say about this? Well, the night before he died, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, he's been teaching them a load of things about the Holy Spirit, he says, I've told you this so that my joy might be in you, so that your joy might be complete. John 15, 11. When Jesus says that, the timing sounds a bit off, doesn't it? Because Jesus knows full well that within 24 hours he's going to be dead. And yet, even when the disciples are coming to terms with the trauma of the crucifixion, Jesus wants them to actually have joy in their hearts. So, among other things... It's obviously not the only thing God wants, but among other things, God's desire for your life and for mine is that we should be a people who are full of joy. Now, let me qualify that. We're not here talking about a kind of mindless joy that is all smiles and no substance. Christians who are like that are, frankly, a bit of a nuisance. No, we're talking about real joy that comes from knowing God personally, understanding what he's done for us and being absolutely confident that we can trust him in everything. And other people ought to be able to see it. But we have to say, don't we, that very often that isn't the case. Too many Christians look as if Joy was something they actually know very little about. Now the main reason for that, I want to suggest to you this morning, the number one kind of joy killer or joy extinguisher 
in our lives, I suggest, is anxiety. It's fear. Fear about the future. I mean, our lives are so pressured today, aren't they? And they're so cluttered with stuff that there's never any shortage of things to be anxious about. I don't know whether that's true for you, it's certainly true for me. So, although we hear what Jesus is saying, we find ourselves, don't we, asking, well, okay, but what if I lose my job? What if my health starts to deteriorate? What if my spouse leaves me? I mean, the list of potential sources of anxiety is endless if you think about it. But they all have one thing in common. They are joy extinguishers. And when we give in to them, when we let them take over, uh, to the extent that we can't actually think about anything else, and we all know what that's like, what happens is that we miss out on the joy that God has for us today. Why? Because we're not trusting him for tomorrow. And uh, when that happens, we actually stop being the people God wants us to be because we're not rejoicing in the Lord. Now that is the situation at the beginning of chapter 14 in John's Gospel. Uh, Just look down at your Bible. Just look towards the end of chapter 13, which we didn't look at together. But uh, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going away. Look at verse 33 of chapter 13. He says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you can't come. And then the the reaction of the disciples is reflected in Peter's question in verse 37. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then at the beginning of chapter 14, the passage Faye read for us, Thomas and then Philip ask very similar questions. Now that is telling us, isn't it, that the disciples at this point are anxious. I mean, their lives have been totally wrapped up with Jesus for the last three years. How can they possibly face the future without him? And the reply that Jesus gives uh, to his disciples then is a lesson for us this morning. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 14. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Now what Jesus is saying here is that when you and I are faced with anxieties and fears about the future, we have a choice. We do. Are we going to give way and allow those fears to become joy extinguishers? Or are we going to deal with those fears in a biblical way? We've got a choice. Because if you think about it, we can't be troubled and trusting at the same time. Those things are opposites, aren't they? I mean, if I'm troubled, 
then I'm not actually trusting Jesus. One excludes the other. And we have to choose. And in chapter 14, Jesus gives us a host of reasons why we can trust him for the future. But the point, my friends, is that we have to do it. You know, we are responsible for whether we believe him or not. And if we do, well, the what-ifs that have been giving us so many sleepless nights are transformed into even-ifs. So, what if I were to lose my job becomes, well, even if I lose my job, I will still trust Jesus. What if my health starts to deteriorate becomes, well, even if my health starts to deteriorate, I will trust Jesus. But I guess the point in the background here is that I can only say I am trusting Jesus and actually mean it if I've got solid reasons for doing it. So what are they? Well, in our passage, Jesus gives us three magnificent promises. And my friends, if we understand these promises, and if we believe them, well, there'll be a shield protecting our hearts against the fears and the anxieties which can so easily steal our joy away. Let me tell you what the promises are, uh, just in headline form, and then we'll look at them a little bit more closely. Promise number one. Promise number one is, heaven is our home. See, our home is not the bricks and mortar where we live in Cape Town. Our home is not our favourite holiday destination. Our home is not the place where we're hoping to retire. If we're Christians, heaven is our home. Promise number two. Jesus is the way. Now many people today hear that as bad news. Uh, In their innermost thoughts they believe that if heaven actually exists and they're not really too sure whether it does or not, they're going to get in because, well, they're just really nice people. So when Jesus says, I am the way, they don't like it. It sounds exclusive, It sounds intolerant and yet that is to completely miss what Jesus is saying. We're going to see why that is the case and why the promise that Jesus makes is actually the best news in the world. Promise number three. Prayer is our privilege. See, Jesus says in this text that he has opened up a unique line of communication between earth and heaven so that every single Christian, without exception, can talk to God and be absolutely certain that God is listening. So let's look at those just a little bit more closely. Number one, heaven is our home. Now here we're looking at verses 2 and 3 in the text. The Bible consistently impresses on us that heaven is the destination for every Christian... And throughout the New Testament, we're constantly being urged to look forward to it. And yet, of course, having said that, there are very few places, aren't there, in the Bible where we're given 
many hard facts about it. Um, No doubt there are other reasons for it, but I think one of the reasons for that is because human language doesn't actually have the categories to adequately describe it. But interestingly, John 14 is one of those few places. And because the information that we find here comes from the only person who's been to heaven and who can therefore speak about it from personal experience, we need to be listening closely. Jesus tells us four things about it. First, he tells us that heaven is a place. It's an actual location. Look at verse 2. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there, look at it, to prepare a place for you. So, contrary to what many people think today, heaven is not simply a nice religious idea. It is an actual location. And Jesus has gone there to prepare a place in the Father's house for the Father's children. Now, I'm sure you know this, Jesus never, never uses words accidentally. And here what he's doing is very deliberately using the language of the home so that we can begin to connect with the experience of what it's going to feel like when we get there. So one writer says this, quote, Home is the place where we are loved for our own sakes and not for our performance or our possessions. It is the place where we are loved unconditionally, never forgotten, always welcome. As I said, the first thing. Second thing, heaven is the place where Jesus is. That's verse 3. Jesus says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That means that when we die and go to heaven, we go to be with Jesus. And just remember, will you, that Jesus is there in his resurrection body. We know that because when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in a physical body that his disciples could see and touch and he could eat a meal. They could talk to him, he could talk to them. Now that's how it's going to be for us. Being in heaven means being with Jesus in our resurrection bodies in a physical reality. Which means, of course, that it's the exact opposite of the caricature that you sometimes see in cartoons that suggest that Christians are going to be floating around on a cloud playing a harp or something like that. Third, heaven is a place with ample space for all who trust in Jesus. Because back in verse 2, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Which means there is absolutely no danger of you and me arriving at the gates of heaven and finding that it's fully booked. 
Heaven is not like Cape Town at the peak of the tourist season. Everyone who's put their trust in the Lord Jesus is expected. Our reservation is guaranteed and we will be warmly welcomed. And fourth, and this was was an interesting thought here, we will be escorted into heaven by Jesus himself. Verse 3, Jesus says, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now this might, I think this does actually contain a thought that's fresh for some of us. Because there is a tendency in some church circles to say that when we arrive at the gates of heaven, we're going to be asked to produce sufficient evidence of our faith in order to get in. The implication of that is if the evidence we provide is defective or deficient, we'll be turned away, a bit like kind of arriving at passport control, only to discover that your passport expired last week. That idea is not biblical. Because Jesus says when we die, the gates of heaven are going to swing wide open for us. Why? Because Jesus himself will be with us. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? a very comforting thought. So if you're a Christian, these verses are a clear reminder to you that heaven is your home and that your place is already booked and paid for. The second promise in the passage is Jesus is the way. Now, uh, in verse 5, Thomas asks the question that I suppose many people want to ask. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, can I say in passing that, of course, verse 6 is a compact, very compressed summary of the Gospel. If somebody asks you to explain the Christian message to them and you're pushed for time, can I recommend verse 6 to you as a terrific place to start? The message couldn't be clearer. If we know Jesus, not if we know about him, but if we know him in the sense that we accept his words as truth from God, well, we can be absolutely sure that we are on the right road and that the age of the life to come is ours now, even while we live. Now, there can't be a greater promise than that, can there? Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. But I know, and you know, that verse 6 has actually caused more offence to non-Christians than just about any other verse in the New Testament. For a start, no other religious leader in history has ever made such extraordinary claims about themselves. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote uh, the Narnia Chronicles and a number of other terrific books, he captures this rather well in one of his essays, and um, he's being sceptical, even rather humorous here, but he says this, quote, Now supposing you were to go to the Buddha and ask him, Are you the ultimate? Are you God in person? 
He would answer, son, you are still in the veil of illusion. You haven't begun to understand. I can show you the pathway, but I'm not the ultimate. C.S. Lewis continues, if you were to go to Muhammad and ask him, are you Allah, the one true God? Are you God incarnate? He would firstly rend his garments for your blasphemy and secondly chop off your head. And then he says again, if you were to go to Confucius and ask him, are you it? Are you the ultimate that's out there, whatever that is? Confucius would say, remarks not in accordance with reality are not in good taste. Which is all C.S. Lewis's rather humorous way of saying that absolutely nobody else, no one, has ever made the astonishing claim that Jesus makes in verse 6, and people have got great difficulty with it. Now why is that? Can I suggest two reasons? There might be others. I'm just going to suggest two. Firstly, there is a difficulty in understanding. I mean, what is Jesus really saying here? Perhaps the easiest way to tackle that is to be clear about what he is not saying. Jesus is not saying, I am a way to the Father, as if he is simply one of several equally valid alternatives which all end up in the same place. That might be more digestible. It would certainly be more politically correct. But you see, if that were what Jesus meant, he wouldn't have gone on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because Jesus is the way to the Father in the sense that he is the only way. And someone, maybe someone even here this morning, will say, that is exclusive and arrogant and I won't accept it. But of course that is to misunderstand Jesus completely. Last week in chapter 13 we saw the Lord Jesus dressed as a servant, didn't we? There he was, kneeling, washing the disciples' feet in great humility. And of course that is a picture we saw, didn't we? It's a picture of the invitation of the cross. And it's saying to us that Jesus is willing to wash away the sins of literally anybody who comes to him so that they can be made clean for heaven. But what he's saying this morning in chapter 14 is that only he can do it. There's something else that Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying, I know the way to the Father. As if he's simply standing by the side of the road offering helpful advice to anybody who asks him. No, he himself is the way to the Father. I think a cross-reference here will help us. Just keep a finger in John. Please turn on to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Because this tells us, I think, how the very first generation of Christians understood what Jesus meant in John 14. So are we all there? Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19, the writer says, quote, 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, now look at these words, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You see what's happening there? Jesus is the only way to heaven because it was his broken body and his shed blood that paid the price for our sin. And only Jesus could achieve that for us. Because only Jesus is fully man and fully God. But because he has done it, he's opened the way through the curtain that separates sinful men from a holy God. So literally anybody who's been washed by Jesus can approach God with confidence and full assurance. Now let me ask, does that sound exclusive and arrogant to you? Does it? It doesn't, does it? It's actually the most inclusive offer imaginable. But I said that there were two difficulties that people have with what Jesus says in John 14. And the second is not actually a difficulty in understanding what Jesus meant. It's the difficulty of the human heart. And maybe this is slightly closer to home for some of us. So our only other cross-reference this morning, turn back please in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 6. Isaiah... Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Jeremiah, chapter 6. Now what we've got here is a message from God to people who were always looking for culturally convenient ways to find favour with him, but who were wondering why God wasn't listening. And when I put it like that, of course, that's today, isn't it? Yes? Jeremiah 6, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is. And walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. Pause on that. So God's desire is that men and women today should stop looking for ways to reach him out of their own imagination. He's given them, according to this verse, he's given them a good way. It's his way. He's urging them to come back to it. But now look at the end of verse 16. But you said, we will not walk in it. So the problem that people have with the words of Jesus in John 14 is exactly the same that it's always been. God has opened up a way to heaven through the cross of Christ. It's open to everybody. If you're not yet a Christian, you want to go to heaven, 
you want the eternal life that Jesus is offering, he's going to be overjoyed to give it to you right here, right now. All you've got to do is ask him. The problem, though, is that by nature, we don't like God's way. We want to go our own way. Now, what that means is that when you die, if you find that you are not in heaven, it won't be because God didn't want you. It won't. It will be because you chose to go your own way. Come back to John 14. And uh, while you're turning there, let me try and summarise where I hope we've got to. See, the Christian life is a joyful life because heaven is our home and because Jesus is the way. The way is still open this morning. And lastly, the Christian life is a joyful life because prayer is our privilege. Now, remember the context. Uh, Jesus is prepping his disciples for his departure. And his main objective is to help them understand that his death is going to make it possible for them to continue his mission when he's no longer on planet Earth. That's what he's doing. And I think if you read this flat without knowing how the Gospel ends, I think what is so surprising about this is that this is quite clearly not second prize. You know, this is not plan B. Clearly, Jesus isn't thinking that way. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And... uh, If we're wide awake, we read that and we say that cannot possibly be right. I mean, Jesus did some amazing things that nobody else has done before or since. He walked on water. Have you done that? Did you do that over the holidays, Darlington? No. He walked on water. He stilled a storm with a word. He fed 5,000 people from one little boy's packed lunch. Has anybody here done that? No, you haven't. Well, the disciples haven't. So how on earth can Jesus say that they will do greater things? What does he mean? Is he talking about greater in quantity or greater in number? No, what Jesus meant was not greater in number, but greater in significance. Yes, it's true that many of the things Jesus did were absolutely unique. That's important because they testified to his deity. No one else has ever done them. But there is a sense in which many of Jesus' miracles during his earthly ministry were, if I can put it like this, time-bound, restricted by time. Because, for example, whenever Jesus healed someone who was sick... There would come a day, wouldn't there, when that person died. Or think of dear old Lazarus. 
You know, Jesus raised him from the grave. He was alive. But a day came when Lazarus died. But when Jesus went back to the Father, what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, when, do you remember, Peter stood up to preach about Jesus to the crowd, 3,000 people were converted, meaning they were saved for eternal life. Now, conversions on that scale never happened during the earthly ministry of Jesus because the Spirit hadn't yet come. But now, the Spirit has come. That means everything has changed. And Jesus says in verse 12, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Just read that again, will you? Those are astonishing words. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Which means that every Christian, all of us here this morning who believe in Jesus, have the potential to share the gospel so that people believe and receive eternal life. We've all got that potential. And when they do, well, of course, the promises in this chapter are immediately true for them. How do we do it? Answer, by prayer. It's by prayer. Verse 13. I will do whatever you ask in my name, whatever you pray for in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, just be, we need to read this in context. You know, Jesus is not going to drop a million pounds, rand dollars into your bank account tomorrow. I'm sorry, he's not going to do that. Well, he might, he's got, he could, but it's pretty unlikely. Now, the context here spells out the application, doesn't it? Jesus is promising here that when we pray for our unsaved friends, he is giving us the privilege of calling on divine power from heaven to accomplish the greater things, the winning of more people for eternal life in heaven. And can I leave you with this thought this morning? When Christ answers your prayer like that, even just once, you discover a joy and an assurance that nothing in this world can match. Absolutely nothing. So let's pray. Lord, we praise you that your desire for us is that we should be people of joy. People who've discovered what it actually means to delight in you. 
Well, please forgive us for the times when we have allowed anxiety to get the upper hand in our hearts. Help us to stand on the promise of the wonderful future that you've prepared for us through faith. And in the meantime, please grant that we would joyfully exercise the privilege of prayer that calls for divine power so that all your gospel purposes might be accomplished in us and through us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.